0: Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Good afternoon, Scott.
1: (laughs) Howdy, Cole. (laughs) Welcome to another episode. Episode seven. Episode seven of The Christian Citizen.
0: We're actually calling this episode part two, right? The second part of the last one. That's
1: right. Where we ended last week was, I think, about three-quarters of the
0: way through some of the points we were making. Well, what the listener doesn't know is we actually recorded for an hour and a half. Right. (laughs) And Well, it was more. It was about an hour and 45 minutes, and we had to really cut it down. So there's some significant editing going on that um, it just felt like – in order to get at the things we were trying to get at, we ended up following a few rabbits and chasing a few rabbits. And that, that does present a challenge. And um, at the editing phase, I think we decided, hey, why don't we take that out? And then we could remake the argument. Cole, we, uh, we need to talk about our general guiding principles. Yes.
1: That govern each podcast.
0: That govern. They govern each podcast episode.
1: And that is number one sacred cows make great barbecue
0: we will scoff at orthodoxy whenever we please
1: that's right number two we will f- very proudly wave our flag yes
0: of the ways we we won't hide what we believe right and we we're not afraid we're not afraid to engage one another right in, with what we believe because we are bros before politicos yeah which means that we're brothers first in everything else else's de- details. That's right. I will say that even when it comes to flying the flag, part of the reason I love having these conversations with you is I'm free to say something really stupid. <laughs> and you'll say like, there, there are times where you'll say, okay, I don't think you want to make the argument that way. I think you want to make it this way. And I'll be like, yeah, that's so much better than how <laughs> I made it.
1: <laughs> right. So let's remind our listeners of last week's
0: title. Jesus Wants Your Cash.
1: Jesus Wants Your Cash, and uh, it was a discussion about state-sponsored welfare at, at the minimum and lots of things that go with that decision. And so what I would like to do is, on this episode is to begin by finishing a conversation where the last edited one left off, and that was when you had asked me about the part-time Walmart greeter. And the question presented was your um, your your state your view of, of state involvement versus my view of state involvement. And I was saying things – I was delivering a, a list of questions that we should be asking this Walmart greeter who cannot make ends meet, and what should we do about it? Mm-hmm. And the questions were things like, well, why aren't you working full-time? And if there's not a full-time job in your area, why aren't you moving? And why – Have you had children that are beyond your uh, income to to care for? And so on and so forth. And I want to make sure that listeners understand what those litany of questions was about. And that is is a question that the libertarian citizen part of me asks when a progressive state citizen says, Hey, here is a person in need. This person needs your money redistributed to him. And I want to I make sure this point is driven home because, I th- in my view, the progressive citizen argument has shifted tremendously since about 1960. The, it used to be that progressives who were in the government uh, would say while they were uh, writing bills to be considered for the floor and while they were making arguments to their constituents hey these are there are people in this country who are poor and they do not have enough to eat and they do not have enough to care for their children or to even have heat in the winter these people are hurting and they need you to help them and we have a program that will help them that was the argument a long time ago relatively speaking, that argument shifted tremendously during my lifetime to this person's income for whatever reason is below a line that I, the progressive politician, have drawn. Therefore, this person is entitled to your money because you make above a certain line that I have drawn. And so the citizen, the libertarian citizen part of me, comes out fighting when that is presented to me because I am not willing to say that a person deserves anyone's money merely because of arbitrary lines drawn or merely because the government says. But that is very different from the Christian part of me. I believe Christians um, should respond in charitable ways to people who have needs, even if the needs they have were generated due to poor choices. So I'm almost finished. Okay. So that means um, if I know someone who is having a very hard time in life because uh, he has taken drugs for several years and can't keep a job because he has a habit, or um, they have had several children that they can't manage the household budget – Or they bought brand new cars that got repossessed. But whatever it is, people make bad choices. And I believe Christians are called to help people even when they have made bad choices. And they are called to help them through charity. And that's a very different argument from the one progressive citizens have made to me as a citizen, which is they deserve and are entitled to your money because we say
0: so. Go ahead. Why is a Christian required to provide charity even as you say in situations where the um, the person in need is responsible for their situation? I
1: think it's not possible to read i'll I'll, I'll say New Testament. We could say the entire Bible, but mm-hmm. I'll say it's impossible to read. The New Testament, and not understand that Jesus had a concern and urged his uh, commanded his apostles and disciples to be concerned over people who had need. And he also uh, called his people to invest in relationships with people who had need, not just to provide for their needs, but to care about them. And I think what's happened in my lifetime. Is that that has become divorced in our government to where people say it doesn't matter why their income is below this level; they
0: deserve your money. I think there's a reason for that, and I'm going to explore that. But what I want to point out is that you're saying, and I agree with you, and I think it's. Uh, but I think what you sa- what you're saying here, represents um, something that diverts from, let's say, normal practice within evangelicalism. Okay. When you say that Christians have a responsibility to provide charity even when the person doesn't deserve the charity... That is already, I mean, when we're talking about the Christian responsibility and the responsi- and the re- requirement of the church, you are talking about something that's vastly non-evangelical. It is non-Protestant in the American experience. I agree with you. I agree with you that that is something that belongs to the church and not to the state. And so far, we are on the same page, but we are not on the same page with many of our brothers and sisters.
1: Well, let me make sure I, I clarify something you just said as you were clarifying my okay. position.
0: <laughs> then I'll clarify your clarification.
1: Yeah, please. Um, I, I didn't say Christians were required to help people who didn't deserve it. I said people uh, Christians were required to help people even when they make bad choices, because I think people who make bad choices still deserve Christians to care about them. So I want to be careful about the the phrasing of deserves.
0: Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah, I get you. The, well, the reason I think that this is important uh, to to highlight is. In my experience with evangelical Christianity in terms of congregations and their acts of charity, sometimes we will make arguments such as, well, you know, we would help this family if uh, they stopped smoking cigarettes. We would help this family if they would um, uh, get a job. Or come to church. Or come to church. And... I agree with you a thousand percent that that's not a prescription offered in the New Testament. Now, there are some elements of the way Paul describes, for example, the church's responsibility of charity, you know, that those who, shall, who, who do not work shall not eat. Um, I think that there are some ways in thinking about how the church does this in a restorative way. But that is a very different conversation than whether the church does this in a way that where, where folks have earned our charity.
1: Well, I think what you're saying is that everyone deserves a Christian's positive regard. They deserve They deserve
0: Christian deserve our restoration. Yes. Yeah, our restorative acts. And that's so, mercy, that's that, grace.
1: That is mercy. That's right. And I want to say something about churches who say we will help you if, okay? So bear with me one moment. Okay? I, it's easy to criticize people for saying I'll help you if, but I want to I want to point out And I heard this said in the most concise, pithy way by a social worker who was uh, being interviewed on another podcast. And her thesis was that charity is always bad. And the reason why is that charity requires people to doff their caps, right? It requires them to embrace a lower position than the person who's providing charity. And for that reason, she said, government assistance needs to be very anonymous, very, very cold. You walk into an office, you get the check or you get your food or whatever. And it's, it's, it's a very regimented, automated process because in that way, you protect the person's dignity. They don't have to doff their caps And I think that is where the pendulum has swung to its very edge because it assumes that there is something inherently wrong with saying, my goodness, of course you don't have enough food. I want to help you. Here is food. Now, let's talk about why you're in a position that you don't have enough food. I see that you are you know, a cigarette smoker or that you have a brand new car outside in the driveway. Let's talk about how the choices you're making with money has led to you not having food and i think she would say that is abhorrent and i would say as a citizen that is smart and as a christian it's restorative
0: yeah and there's a theological reason for all of this the the gift of christ on the cross it happens before you need before you recognized that you needed it right that's god's proactive charity it right. is karis right. grace So when we decide to act like the master, we act in ways that begin the act of restoration on our part, not as a transaction, right? Right. But as an investment, as an investment of everything. And I'm not saying we give away everything, but we think about charity as investments in people. Now that is a different thing than a transaction where I just assume I'm going to give somebody uh, some money and they're going to start coming to my church, or I'm going to give somebody some money and they're going to get their act together. Mm-hmm. These are different transactions. Those are not in any way informed by caris, right? That's not charity. Uh, so charis is, charity comes from the Greek charis, which means, which is the word we use for grace, right? Uh, or gift. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not the gift like the gift God gave us in Christ. But um, I, I would say that the effort that we're that the church is engaged in is restoration. And I would also suggest that the church is the only place that can do restoration. How do you like them apples?
1: I think that is a very I, – I enjoy hearing you talk about that because I believe that that is true. And it's one of the places we overlap considerably.
0: Yeah, um, it's – now I will say, and I said this in the last episode, I think that Christianity has failed in Karis. I think we have failed theologically to understand our role in this in the in society around us, low these last seventeen hundred years, but nonetheless, We continue to have that responsibility, and if we live up to our responsibility, I say 1,700 years, there are exceptions. Of course there are exceptions. I've seen them in my own, with my own eyes, moments of charis happening, right, where people are restored. It is not a transactional giving of money for some outcome, but it's actually charis. I've seen it with my own eyes, but as an institution, I think Christianity has lost sense of what charis is and because we have lost that sense the world is suffering maybe the world was going to suffer anyway but the world is suffering and we're not doing our job and so that's why you'll hear me say i'm a socialist my that my socialism is really a manifestation of the church not not having fulfilled its responsibilities
1: okay and i it's think
0: pragmatic
1: right and i think that's where we're going to go next right and so let me let me close the door the close the loop that that i started at the end of the last episode by saying one of the ways that it's so easy for me to separate my Christian citizenship in the, the way, the kingdom of God, and my United States citizenship as a libertarian is to say I want to help people who have need as a Christian. And the way that lets me do that the most is by having a non-coercive government that lets me do that. And the reason I reject so quickly the government means of redistribution for welfare purposes or for felt needs purposes is that it assumes a coercive position that does not allow what you're talking about, the restorative process, and it does not allow me to engage in charity to its fullest extent. I still care about the people who don't have enough food. I I just want – that is the job of the church – not the job of a citizen,
0: being your friend, I felt very comfortable at the end of the last episode with where things were. and i I said, you know, I think I could say justifiably that you care about the poor. But what I think is really um important for people who don't know you to understand is the uh, uh, the powerful way you're describing the church's responsibility. It is unique. It is ultimately, I think restorative and i think it is a means by which agape is expressed in the world around us and this is gospel driven and you know in in so far as you're calling the church to um that kind of activity and calling us as individual christians to participate in that kind of activity uh i don't think it's our i don't think one can justifiably argue against what you're saying and um i can understand the assertion that i chose to belong to christ and so i chose to take on the responsibilities that go with that i did not choose to be an american i was born here the state does not have a right to take away from me what i choose not to give i can see that distinction and understand that someone with that distinction still says, but I'm going to give, and I'm going to give generously, and I'm going to give non-transactionally. It's just that the state doesn't get to take it. Correct. Do you think that that's...
1: That's very fair. Fair um, articulation of what I believe, yes.
0: Now, I will say that I'm very comfortable as a member of the state to take your money. (laughs) Let's talk about that. I have no problem with (laughs) it. But before we get there... um, you said something I think is really uh, important about uh, progressivism and how progressivism has progressed. Talk to me a little bit about what you mean when you say that we have moved toward the language of entitlement in your lifetime. Do you think that this is a function of Great Society programs? Do you think Great Society changed the conversation? What causes the change to this sense of entitlement Whereas, and I would agree with you, progressivism in the time of, for example, if you look at the New Deal and the CCC, what is the CCCC? The,
1: yeah, all that stuff in the, 50, in the 30s. In and 40s. the
0: 30s during the Depression, yeah. right? You worked. You want a you job? We'll give you a job. The government's going to pay your salary, but you're going to be swinging a pickaxe. That's a very different thing than um, the criticism I hear from a lot of uh, folks on the conser- uh, on the right who are saying, you know, now we're just sending out checks for no reason.
1: Well, the reason they give is that your income falls below this level. Got it. And there are a couple of reasons that I think it has progressed that way in my lifetime. Hit it. And in parenthesis, I will also say that though – FDR's administration had people working. It was often I know. go dig the hole and this guy will fill it up <laughs> or go take pictures. Or you go didn't paint roll your up.
0: eyes, but I felt your eyes oh, rolling. Oh, they're rolling.
1: <laughs> they were rolling. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, I, in my lifetime, I've seen progressivism move from a place of these folks have needs that are felt needs that are preventing them from eating sufficiently, mm. coming in out of the elements it has moved from that conversation to a conversation of here's a line that's going to be drawn on um, a chart regarding the income amount reported on an on an income tax document that line moves if you have children it moves if you um, have other credits and other items that were put in there as a result of people being voted into office and placing them in there.
0: And it has now become a discussion of... We need to support the arts so that the poor have... Are in, because the poor are entitled to be exposed to the arts. You know, that is a direct... That's almost a
1: direct quote on yep. NPR is people deserve yeah. good... Art And what that means is a group of people sit in a room and say, this artist over here is so talented that we need this artist to not have to work another job, and so he or she will get tax money mm-hmm. in order to make art all day. Yeah. That is an absurd far cry from this person literally does not have enough food from day to day. Yeah. And the, I think we've moved there for two reasons. Number one, think about Maslow's hierarchy. As the world's capital markets have improved, the rich have gotten richer, and the poor have gotten richer as well. And so we now have fewer things, uh, the things that we argue about regarding poverty are, are much different. And the second reason is, I think, vying for power by politicians who say, if you vote me in, I will move that line of poverty or I'll move The lines of – move the parameters that generate the welfare system to more and more people, which is why, according to the IRS, only approximately 47 people – 47 percent of the people who file income taxes
0: pay income tax. So I actually think this comes from someplace. Okay. And I don't think it comes from the state. I think it came from Protestantism. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready for this no we uh you know the american protestant the American version of Protestantism yes has uh historic, Dan brought this up when he was our guest that you know it kind of features this idea of work you know when you are successful it's a manifestation of both your work and god's favor mm-hmm. right it's the perfect combination and it's it is supported I mean you have texts especially in wisdom literature that tend to support these um, general truths, right? Train up a child in the way that he shall go and he will not divert from it. If you're a good parent, you'll have good kids. Um, If you're a good parent, things will be working out for the next generation and they will enjoy enjoy the benefit of that for future generations. And so there is a kind of manifestation. When things are good, it is a manifestation of our goodness and our good choices. And when things are not good, It's a manifestation of uh, laziness, and by us you mean the nation as a whole, right? So we're back to Deuteronomy type passages, but just so we're not, so we're clear. This is a bigger problem than just American Protestantism. For example, this was an issue back during the uh, in the 14th century with the with the plague, right? The response of the church was, "Oh my goodness, so many people are dying. We must have done something wrong." Uh, when, When Christianity is a big part of the culture. Actually, this doesn't have to be Christianity when religion is a big part of a culture. Then we start to interpret everything through the lens of morality. Mm -hmm. If I work hard, I'll have everything I need. If I don't have everything I need, it's because I was lazy. So this really starts to manifest itself, I think, in the, after, after World War II, you start to see this conversation about work and laziness um, emerging, and you can see it in sermons of the time. Um, and so by the time we get to the Great Society programs, um, what you have are a number of folks saying, Hold on a second. You just called an entire group of people lazy who don't have opportunity. Right, They don't have the same opportunity we have, and you call them lazy. That's not fair. You call, you, you, you've judged their virtue by the fact that they're poor and said that they obviously don't deserve it. That's not fair. We need to change the conversation. Let's just change the, and I th- this is my theory, we change the rhetoric away from deserving and to everybody deserves it. Everyone is entitled. Everyone is entitled to a house. Everyone is entitled to um, uh, an education. Everyone is entitled to access to the arts. Everyone is entitled to uh, live in a neighborhood wherever they want to the same opportunity that everyone, everyone, because this is a, this is a polemic against only the people who deserve it. So, that you think that was
1: a, a state response to the private sector, which was largely a moralized
0: religious? Interesting. If you look at the way the conversation happens um, about the state's involvement in uh, the economy during the 30s, you see very few of you people standing up, right? there well,
1: weren't very many of us
0: well partly cuz some of you didn't do as well in the 20s yeah yeah <laughs> right but the other part of it is we never got around to moralizing poverty in the during the great depression if you were poor it was cuz of the government <laughs> It's because of the it's because of this depression going on. Right, right, right. It it was externalized. It was it, it no it was no longer an issue that coal does not like to hold a job, Cole smokes too many cigarettes. It was bigger than that. And the economic failure was bigger than that, and so we we stopped we, we had no room for conversations about who deserves the money they have and who doesn't deserve the money they had. It was all out of kilter. And we're very comfortable saying, you know what? Folks deserve uh, to have a a bowl of soup. I think you are entirely fair to suggest that um, our definition of needs has definitely shifted away from I need access to education, to a basic education or to a a functional education. I need access to some basic form of health care. That conversation shifts, and I don't know how this happened, but that conversation sh- shifted for progressives away from "I need we need to make sure that healthcare, basic healthcare is available to everyone," to complaining that CEOs have these um, what do they call them limousine uh, medical plans, Cadillac Cadillac medical plans. <laughs> Some kind of conveyance. (laughs) It's a conveyance. It's a rickshaw. (laughs) I don't think I would be a socialist worth a name if I did not admit that progressivism has changed its conversation about what needs are. And and maybe in ways that have failed progressivism. If everybody needs an iPhone, we've kind of got a problem.
1: Yeah, and I think I can provide the perfect example of this, Hit it. of this. Some people will know this and some people might not, but there are, the people in my camp, the classical liberals or libertarians, will argue that the cause of the housing crisis of 2008 began when Jimmy Carter, and it was later expanded and amended by Bill Clinton, essentially argued that people in the united states who could not afford to purchase a home via traditional underwriting mechanisms at banks um, could in fact buy one using the government as lender of last resort and it was necessary for them to own a home to fully embrace citizenship or to be fully happy in the united states and that's a terrible terrible argument and it uh what what you saw in 2008 was the result of a couple of decades of this horrible policy that did include some uh, toxic investment vehicles at the end. Of course, I will admit that. But there's a terrific paper called Gambling with Other People's Money. by will put Russ. that in show notes. Okay, yes, by Russ Roberts that explains this. And it, it was just a policy-driven failure driven by people – Redefining
0: needs. Um, so one of the one of the things I I was asking you about is whether the um, where does this change come from? Do you think this change? Where do you think this change comes from? Where uh, at one point progressivism was about satis- about helping people with basic needs, and shifted away from basic needs to some form of entitlement. Yes. And I would like to assert that I think there is room to offer criticism of the church writ large in this. The criticism is that we have failed to engage in the public square in ways that help people understand we're the ones who know what it means to live lives of meaning, lives of dignity, of true dignity. And because we were We've been largely absent from the kinds of conversations that folks need to hear. Um, And because we've been absent and, and not provided the kind of leadership in the public square that we are uniquely equipped to provide, the world is left to figure out on its own how to deal with poverty. The world is left on its own to figure out how to establish dignity how to do charity with dignity. I, I, I don't have any criticism for the woman that you described who says that charity uh, requires somebody to doff the cap. Here's why. Without our work in the community, first of all, and second of all, our persuasion in the public square of what real caris is, of course she thinks that's what you have to do. She has no other definition. When the world does charity, the world does charity in transactional ways. It's just that we should, we should have access to a better way. Uh, so I don't mean to simply say that the church has not done enough, that we haven't done enough giving. The reason we haven't done enough giving is I don't think we've done enough loving. And because we haven't done enough loving, we also haven't done enough persuasion in the public square. We haven't helped people understand who they are. I think if you listen to some of the messages, look at your favorite televangelist and look at the way the messages are largely broadcast, that if you are faithful, you will be healthy. Or if you are faithful, that you will be out of debt or that you will have all of your needs met or that uh, you'll have more than you need. And you hear folks, I heard it at my congregation just three or four weeks ago, somebody was He was, I mean, he was trying to talk about how good God is and I can get it. But what he said was, you know, the Lord has really blessed us. Um, We have a, we have a nice home and we have uh, wonderful kids and and God has been very good to us. I understand giving thanks to God, but what that also suggests is that the guy who doesn't have that stuff is because God didn't what? Bless him. Didn't bless him. We have really done a very bad job of helping people understand the kind of faith that understands God's, will, God's love and God's blessing while we're hung upside down on a cross. The apostles seem to have gotten this, but we have lost it. We've lost the kind of faith that can, um, that can face Nero on the final day and say, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. We've lost the kind of faith and the kind of witness in the community that would say your dignity is defined by the, the work of Christ on the cross, not by what your circumstances are. And because we have failed in all these ways, and I can go on and on and on, and maybe I should, but because we have failed in all these ways, we leave the world left to figure out what charity is. And we let the world define what charity is. Instead of using the definition that you provided and instead of doing that work and calling one another to that work of charity as you have defined it and I think very, very well, we have left that to the community, the community of non-believers, just people to figure it out. And I think where I want to go with this is I want to assert that we do belong in the public square. I would agree with you that we shouldn't be writing laws, but that's different than saying we don't belong in the public square. I think we're not in the public square enough, and I don't think we're there in rigorous enough ways. Oh, I completely agree with that.
1: Uh, and, in fact, the, the question that everything you're saying, which I think is wonderful, leads me to, and you may or may not be ready to answer it at this moment, but it, it just it's, di- it's knocking at the door is then why don't you, as a Christian progressive, Turn around to the church and say, and use your time and effort saying, "Church, let us behave differently." Why do you instead grasp the levers of the state to coerce people to give money to to transfer wealth? It seems like you're, every, all the problems you're describing would lead you to be a prophet to the church and say, "Look how poorly we're leading."
0: And the difference between you and me is not merely that you're a libertarian and I'm a socialist. The other difference is I'm nothing at stake with my political view. It is merely pragmatic. It is merely ontological. You better explain that.
1: (laughs) You better explain it to me.
0: So – I actually don't care what the form of government is. This is why you hear me say I have the same job no matter who's president. I have the same job no matter who my representative in Congress is. I have the same job if I live in North Korea. It's the same. I am a citizen of one kingdom. I'm happy to offer what little um, uh, voice I can in the public square to bring about Agape and caris in the community. Having said that, Socialism seems ontologically to work for me. I know you don't think it does, but um, it it is merely a means to an end. It is merely ontological, consequential, that there is no virtue in socialism for me. Virtue is in Christianity. So if you were to become convinced
1: that socialism actually harmed people, then you might
0: I am convinced that socialism harms people. I'm convinced libertarianism harms people. I'm convinced <laughs> that, uh, r- that Republicans any and form Democrats of economic or any form of political structure. And that's one of the things we need to make clear is that socialism is an economic structure, not a power structure. Right, right. right that's true. But um, any of these, they are going to be harmful. Your libertarianism is fundamentally harmful. Oh, boy that is quite the statement i think socialism works as a as a political as a as an economic technology it works can we go to venezuela and have this discussion no but you can go to scandinavia and have this discussion. oh i would love to talk yeah, about this. i know you would that's not the point because you think i'm getting this is where we you and i are fundamentally different you your libertarianism is deontological it is principled Right? This is why you, you, you keep coming back to constitution. The constitution defines what our, um, what our rights are, what our options are. I can say constitution, constitution, I don't care. I, if I live in North Korea, I'm still a citizen of the same kingdom. And the public square is just a place I happen to walk while I'm still belonging to Jesus. It has nothing to do with my faith.
1: But in the way that you would not walk up to a citizen in Sweden and punch him in the face, because that's harmful, why would you support and vote for and, and embrace politicians who take my real property away? Is it that you don't con- consider that harm like punching me in the face?
0: Well, yeah. And I do think, as I mentioned before, I think there is violence in the system. I think you know, any transaction, the, the, as you move backwards toward the natural resource, it ultimately ends up in violence.
1: Either the violence of the government who puts me in jail for not paying, or the violence
0: of—well, I mean, if you own, if you own oil, if you own the ground from which oil comes, yes. and have the rights to that, the way you have that ownership is at some point at its at its prime mover moment, an act of violence.
1: Yes, private property is supported in a libertarian
0: system. Right, I think via government pro- protection. Ultimate, private property is an ultimate requirement of libertarianism. Yes, absolutely. And private property is an act of violence so that but that's an economic argument why are you looking at me that way because I'm thinking about it my my point is I think socialism offers a technology against the oppression of the markets
1: and and so the person who is in charge so, you know, of I'm the happy sociali- to take some of your money So the person who's in charge of the socialistic mechanism who must make sure that everyone contributes the way the socialism mechanism works, That person is also violent, and you're saying there's violence everywhere. Sure, there's violence Because there's a person in the socialist system who holds a clipboard that says, you haven't worked enough for today for what you're getting.
0: Right. Now, that's an economic system. In terms of the power system, that person has a clipboard because we, the people, elected representatives who put that person in in place.
1: Every socialist system must have people who make sure that the citizens are doing their part.
0: Right. You are represented. My point is, you are represented in your taxation.
1: In, in the, in the I, I lost your reference, in the socialist yes. uh, that I'm, okay. All right. Yeah.
0: Here's where I want to go with this.
1: Okay. What I'm going to let go by as you go into your next thing is the ontological and consequential harms
0: that socialism has wrought. I know you're letting that go. For centuries. Go ahead. I know you're letting that go. I think we can have, we can compare ontologies and harms. I think is futile and I'm, I still stand by my primary point, which is all of them are harmful. You and I have access to the non-harming, the restorative form uh, that is not codifiable into law. You can't make it into a deontology, but we can persuade people to become men and women of virtue. We can persuade people to, uh, uh, to think in, um, in loving ways about their neighbor. We can do that regardless of w- what violence the state or the economic structure um, wages upon people.
1: You know, I'm not sure that's true, though. Okay, I know. I know you're trying to go somewhere else. No, but no, no. Because if every Christian I know, if I'm a non-Christian, and every Christian I know, and you're is, a
0: Christian I know,
1: and you're, <laughs> if every Christian I know is setting up government that coerces me, I'm not going to think very highly of the persuasion of those Christians who tell me to love my neighbor. Because well, I'm, I'm saying, I'm trying as hard as I can to understand and to love my neighbor, but I keep having my things taken away from me by the government that you're putting in place.
0: I, I totally hear that. It's just that if you experience some other violence in the system, I mean, that's one violence. If you experience a different violence, you'll say, but I don't understand how I, uh, how Christian people can uh, except this other violence it's just a difference of violences uh, I, and there's I, a violence of me mm. taking away your money and there's a violence of you taking away land that didn't belong to you or using natural resources that belong to the people and not to you individually there's always a violence we're just having an argument about which violence
1: okay and i think we're also having an argument about the scope of the violence yeah but, sure sure but and but what, go ahead and what harm is mm-hmm. yeah well we've gotten into the weeds
0: we did get in the weeds, but <laughs> let me let 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 me say two things. in terms of your your idea of closing off this con this the conversation started in the last okay podcast. Number one, I'm saying this as uh, the most liberal person in the room for miles, for miles and miles around. It is entirely possible to be all in with Christian charity and. All out when it comes to the state's responsibility toward poverty, access, opportunity, all of that. In fact, I would never make the claim as one who believes that the state has, if not permission, responsibility to provide access and opportunity and to mitigate power wherever possible, including the market. As much as I would say that, that is in no way informed by my faith. Because that is a human technology, not something that is informed by the story of the gospel. So both are separated. And I think it's healthy to say that they're separated. But the second thing I want to say, I hit at, at the end of our last episode, I want to challenge the idea that Christians do not participate in the public square. We may not codify things into law. But I do think that we have a sacred responsibility to restore the lives of people around us. And I think we have to take that very, very seriously, regardless of whether I'm a libertarian or I'm a socialist. We have a responsibility, and it's part of the reason why I love doing this podcast with you, because I think what we're doing in having these conversations has nothing to do with – you're not going to turn me into a libertarian. You try (laughs) till the day you die, but it's not going to happen. But – you're also never going to turn me off from being your brother, right? Right. And if there's anything I think the world does not understand, it's this. I'm, I'm doing my finger back and forth between colon. It's this, right? Right. Because the world doesn't get that because the world has no access to it. And it's the thing that you and I uniquely provide. It's, a, it's one example of the thing that you and I uniquely provide. Um, And I know that's preachy. (laughs) But um, I think we've spent too little time uh, in Christianity preaching to ourselves about the way we engage in the public square.
1: Yes, and I couldn't agree with you more that Christians of any political stripe need
0: to be in the public square. Uh, When I edit this, I'm just going to stop it where it says you couldn't agree with me (laughs) more.